to the Learn to Lead podcast brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show, we have Jonah Berger, a marketing professor at the Wharton School and an international best-selling author. He has published over 50 articles in top-tier academic journals. He teaches Wharton's highest-rated online course. And over a million copies of his books are in print in over 35 countries around the world. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to start with your newest book, Catalyst, which is focused on change, changing minds, changing opinions, changing behaviors. Let's start here. Why is change just so difficult? Yeah, I mean, that was a question I wrestled with my, myself for a long time, right? We all have something that we want to change. So, you know, the, the marketers, the salespeople uh, listening may say, I want to change a client or a customer's minds. Um, you know, employees want to change their boss's minds. Leaders want to transform organizations. I can't tell you how many events uh, I go to where, uh, you know, a CEO or someone else speaking before me says, oh, we need, to, we need to take more risks. We need to be more ambitious. We need to think differently. We need to go beyond. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then everyone basically goes back to what they were doing before because everyone wants change, right? It's clear we want to achieve change, but, but it's often uh, really challenging uh, to get there. Um, and, and there are a number of reasons why. You know, part of it is, is uh, what's called the status quo bias. We tend to be attached to things that we're doing already. Um, things that we're doing are familiar. New things are unfamiliar. Uh, old things seem safe. New things seem risky. Um, but it's also part of the, the way we try to, to create change and the way we enact uh, change. You know, often, um, and I, I lead a lot of executive education programs at Wharton, and so when I talk about this stuff, I often ask the audience to say, you know, write down something that you want to change, it can be whatever you want, uh, and then write down one thing you, you do or have done uh, to try to change that thing. And so people think about it, they write down various things they might want to change. Um, and what we find is over 98% of the time, uh, people list some version uh, of what I'll describe as pushing. So they say, look, uh, I'll provide more information, right? I want to change a client's mind. I'll make another presentation. I want to change a boss's mind. I'll send over one more PowerPoint deck. I'll have one more phone call, one more pitch meeting. If I just explain to the person why they should come around, they'll do it. Um, you know, some people talk about information. Some people talk about emotion. But in all cases, it's some version of, of pushing. And it's clear why we think pushing is good, right? I mean, if, if there's a chair in the middle of a room and we want to move that chair, pushing it is a great way to get it to go the direction we want it to go. Um, but there's one problem, which is that people are not chairs, right? When we push chairs, they go. When we push people, they often push back. They often dig in their heels, they often don't move, or even they do the exact opposite uh, of what we want. And so what I started to wonder is, well, could there be a better way to, to change? Could there be a better way to, to change people's minds, to drive action, to change behavior, whether within organizations or outside it, by understanding why people don't change, why change is so hard, and why they do change, and, and how we can take advantage of that? The book really focuses on that concept of rather than pushing harder or exerting more energy, it's actually about removing barriers. So can we dive in a little bit more on those barriers to change? What are the five barriers that you actually lay out in the book? Yeah, you know, I think a good analogy um, is to think about a car. Right, so imagine you're, you're getting in your car, uh, let's say it's parked on a hill, for example. So you're getting in your car, you want your car to go, 
you bucket your safety belt, you stick your key in the ignition, uh, you turn, uh, you know, you turn the key, you put your foot on the gas. If the car doesn't go, right, often we think we need more gas. If we just push, 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 the car will go. Rarely, though, do we look to our side and go, well, wait, the parking brake is up, right? Mm -hmm. If the parking brake is up, it doesn't matter how much we step on the gas, change isn't going to happen. And the same thing is often true whether it comes to changing people or organizations, right? We can push all we want, but all that people are going to do is going to come up with more resistance or, as they talk about in the book, more reactance to our message. And so what great change agents do, what great catalysts do, is they don't push harder. They don't sit there and they don't think about, well, what could I do to get someone to change? Instead, they take a, a subtly but importantly different approach. They say, well, why hasn't that person changed already? What's stopping them? What's preventing them? They identify the obstacles to change and they mitigate them. And that's exactly where the word catalyst comes from, actually. So um, many of us know catalysts is just change agents. We think about, you know, catalysts create change, but catalysts actually have a very specific meaning in chemistry. In chemistry, catalysts are something that make chemical reactions happen faster and easier, but they don't just do it faster and either do it in a very interesting way. They do it without requiring more energy. They do it by requiring less energy. What catalysts in chemistry do is they figure out an alternate way to help the same reaction happen with less work, not more. And so that's what the book is really all about. How can we identify these common barriers to change, these common obstacles, uh, and mitigate them? And so whether it was talking to, you know, top performing salespeople or transformational leaders, whether it was talking to uh, hostage negotiators or substance abuse counselors, whether it was talking to parenting experts or consultants, again and again, the same five barriers came up. Uh, and so those are the five that I put in the book. Uh, I put them in a framework, uh, which is the REDUCE framework. Uh, and that's just the letters R-E-D-U-C-E. -E. Um, R stands for reactance. Um, and that's the fact that when we push people, they often push back. Uh, e is for endowment. It's our attachment uh, to the past, the status quo bias. You know, we, we tend to be attached to things we're doing already, whether it's projects or initiatives or companies or services. We tend to stick with what we're already doing because it feels safe. Um, uh, the D is distance. Sometimes when we ask for too much, people uh, ignore us or even are unwilling to listen to the possibility of being changed. Um, uh, U is for uncertainty. Um, uh, you know, people uh, are often scared of new things because they involve that uh, uncertainty and so how to ease that uncertainty. Uh, and the last is corroborating evidence or sort of uh, the amount of proof. Um, you know, in, in some cases, one person is not enough uh, to drive change. People need to hear the same thing from multiple others uh, to really believe that something is true or valuable and, and get them to move. And so think about how to utilize multiple others and sort of how to concentrate uh, their insights. And again, I think I use the word reduce here because it's a subtle but important shift uh, in change, right? We all know the outcome we want to achieve. Um, and that's why we focus on pushing. We focus on pushing people towards the outcome we want to achieve. But rarely do we step back and say, well, hold on, what is preventing this person, this organization, this client from changing? And how by sort of finding that root, that underlying cause, that underlying problem, can we identify the barriers and, and mitigate them? You know, when, when you go to a doctor's office, the doctor doesn't say, let me put a cast on your leg. They say, well, hold on, let me start by identifying the problem. Uh, and the same thing is true here. We need to start by figuring out what the problem is, what that barrier are, uh, is or are that are preventing change and, and only then can we really figure out how to remove them. 
you talked and, and you hit briefly on some of the people and organizations that you talked to or studied for this book. Do you have one story that sticks out as maybe a surprising individual or group or a lesson that you maybe didn't expect from one of the people or organizations that you worked with that drove some of this book? Yeah, you know, actually, I'll, I'll tell the story of sort of where I started, because I think this has been kind of an interesting journey for me. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm a professor at the Wharton School. I've been there now for 15 years, um, uh, you know, and uh, originally in my first sort of six or seven years there, I spent most of my time doing teaching and, and research, sort of 90, 95% of my time was in those two buckets, did a little bit of consulting, a little bit of speaking uh, here and there. Um, and then a few years ago, uh, I released a book uh, called Contagious which was all about word of mouth, sort of why people talk, why they share, how to get products, services, and ideas to catch on by understanding the science of, of word of mouth based on some uh, research that I and, and others had done in, in the space. And that book really changed my life. Um, you know, I had expected or hoped that some people would find the book interesting, but I had never realized that people would start to call me and ask me to apply the ideas from the book. And so I started getting calls from, you know, everybody from the, the Googles and the Apples and the Nikes of the world to, you know, uh, GE and small startups and everything in between. Um, and whether it was, you know, go-to-market strategy, generating word of mouth, getting things to catch on, um, change organizational culture, I really got to learn a lot uh, about how modern organizations do business um, and some of the challenges that they're wrestling with. And, and slowly I started to realize that all of them in some sense had a common core issue, which is they all had something that they wanted to change, right? If it was, if it was a new product, it was changing the client or customer's mind. If it was organizational culture, it was getting new initiatives or new ways of doing things to catch on internally. And what they were doing, these strategies of pushing just weren't working, right? I mean, uh, you know, I applied some ideas that I was familiar with and others had used before, and we'd often get some traction, but they wouldn't completely work. And so I started looking around for, well, could there be a better or a different way? Um, and, you know, started uh, trying some strategies that I had read about or learned about, did some research to generate some new strategies. Um, and slowly but surely, I realized some of these things fit together in an interesting way. Um, you know, I, I talked a lot about with, with clients about reducing uncertainty. And I realized, well, wait, there's some broader principles underneath that. I talked about the idea of reactants and realized, well, wait, what parenting experts is, are doing is actually very similar to what great consultants do, but they call it different things. And so I started to sort of play with these ideas and sort of figure out a playbook for them. And, and that's really how this book came about. It was sort of very ground up and it's been neat to see these principles at work in so many different places um, and learn how we can apply them in, in new organizations as well. I'd love to talk a little bit more about you personally. Can you talk about your process of writing a book? What does a normal day look like for you? Or how does the journey happen from kernel of idea to final book published? You know, what I, what I will say is it's never a straight line. <laughs> that, that I think is the, the one thing I can say. Um, uh, you know, at any given day, uh, I'm working on a number of uh, research projects. You know, we're doing a lot of work at the moment uh, related to natural language processing, automated textual analysis, extracting behavioral insight from textual data. So doing a lot of research on those topics, um, uh, you know, mixed in with some, you know, speaking and some teaching and some consulting along the way. But, you know, every, every book is different. I think my, my first two books really came out 
uh, of research that um, I and others had done, teaching that research in whether it was, you know, to MBAs or undergrads or executives, realizing kind of there wasn't something out there that I could share with them beyond the 90 minute class. And so putting them together in, in a book, um, you know, the catalyst, the most recent book came more out of a hole. You know, there was a problem, there was a missing gap um, that I was trying to fill with some of my clients. And I started to put something together to help address that. And, you know, it eventually became a book. And so I never know when they will start or sort of how they'll uh, progress, but it's um, always interesting to, to try to, you know, bring new ideas together in a way that uh, a broad set of folks can understand and use. You, you received a doctorate in philosophy from Stanford back in 2007. Where did you want your career to go at that point? And if you were giving a talk to university students or um, graduate students today, what sort of advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I would even take a, a one step back. So, you know, once I had that PhD in marketing, I kind of, I knew that I was going to be a teacher, um, a professor, you know, I knew that I loved research, I knew that I liked this stuff. But, you know, there was a time before then where, you know, I thought about getting an MBA and working for a company and ended up sort of, you know, getting uh, involved in research and liking it a lot. Um, and I was just recently talking to one of my research assistants who's trying to figure out what to do after undergrad. And, you know, I think the key thing is just to try some things. It's really hard to know exactly what one career is like, one company is like, um, you know, there's so much variation. Uh, you know, I, I teach core marketing at, at Wharton. And so, you know, people come in with these sort of stereotypes of what marketing is based on whatever organization they happen to be at. Um, but marketing varies a lot across organizations and across the world. Um, you know, same with any role, even the same job title at different organizations can mean very different things. And so I think it's really important to get that hands-on experience, whether through internships or trying different things or talking to people that have actually had those roles. It's very hard to sort of guess what something will be like without sort of sitting in that chair or talking to someone that sat in that chair. And so, you know, one great piece of advice I received is, you know, figure out someone who's doing the type of thing you want to do and figure out how they got there. Right? Because in general, certain degrees or certain things may or may not be useful. But if you find someone that sort of got to where you want to be, figuring out the steps they took to get there will, will help increase the chance that you can get there as well. I want to talk about one of your other books just really quickly, which was Invisible Influence. And there was a note associated with it that said 99% of all decisions are shaped by others, yet we're often woefully unaware of when influence happens and how it works. As a leader or for leaders, can you talk about why sometimes other people are motivating and why sometimes what we do or what others do is actually demotivating? Sure, yeah. So we did a study a couple of years ago uh, that, that addresses this, it starts in a very different domain, but kind of uh, addresses this. So um, we were interested in uh, basketball um, and how the score at halftime might relate to the score at the end of the game. Okay, so imagine watching NCAA or NBA, you know, your team is, I don't know, up by five points, down by five points, whatever it might be at halftime. How does the score at halftime relate to the score at the end of the game? Uh, and so not surprisingly, uh, the more points a team is ahead at halftime, the more likely they're to win, right? Every two points uh, you are ahead or two points more you are ahead, you're six to 8% more likely to win the game. Um, one, because you're ahead um, uh, and two, because you just tend to be a better team. And so the further you are behind, the more likely you are to tend to, to lose. But there's one place that actually uh, losing uh, is better than winning. Uh, and that is being just a point behind. Teams that are a point behind at halftime 
uh, actually do better than teams that are a point ahead at halftime. Even though they're worse teams, even though they have to score more points to win, teams that are losing by just a little are more likely to win. Um, and we sort of thought about it and tried to figure out the reason why. And it turns out that being a little bit behind is, is very motivating. Right, uh, you go and come out of the locker room. You're fired up. You're so close. You can almost taste it. You work harder, uh, and you end up performing better. Um, and so we thought that was quite neat. We published a paper. Someone else, though, um, uh, published a very similar paper a few years later, uh, and found something different. So they looked at tennis, and they said, "Okay, imagine you lose a tiebreaker in tennis. So there's a first set. Um, you guys are very close. So there's some sort of tiebreaker. You barely lose the tiebreaker. Are you more or less likely to win um, uh, the next set?" Uh, and what they found is that in tennis, actually, losing a tiebreaker makes you more likely to lose the next set rather than mm -hmm. win. And so well, why is losing bad in tennis, but losing in, in basketball is actually good? And it turns out it's all about the size of the discrepancy, right? Um, when you're, again, down by a point in basketball, you're so close, you can almost taste it. You're right there. If you work a little harder, you can make it. If you're a, a set behind in tennis, that's not so close you can almost taste it, right? It's, you can't even smell it. You're very far away. It's almost like being 20 or 30 points behind uh, in basketball. You're so far behind, you get demotivated uh, and you often give up. And so bringing this back to sort of the workplace and, and motivating employees or teams or entire organizations, we really have to be careful uh, about the others that we compare people to. Peers can be a powerful motivating force, right? Can get us to work harder um, and try harder and even perform better, but it depends on the type of peers that we compare uh, others to. Um, if we compare people to others that are very far ahead of them, hey, look at look at this top performer in the company. They're doing so well. We should all be like her. She's, you know, she's doing so well. Well, that's great if I'm doing almost as well as she is. Because I feel like if I just work a little harder, I can make it. But if I'm very far behind where she is, I'm going to sit there going, well, there's no way I'm going to make it. And so I might as well just, just give up. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to pick what are called proximal peers or others that are just a little bit ahead uh, of where we are. Compare employees to someone who's doing just a little bit better uh, than they are. Someone who had their job previously, but you know did just a little better and got promoted. Someone where they feel like that comparison is relevant. They feel like they can make up that lost ground uh, and they can, they can do that well if they try or encourage them to work harder and perform better as a result. Well, as a final question, before we shift to the last two questions that I ask all guests, you hit on it briefly earlier, but what are you the most curious about right now? Where do you see your research going? Yeah, you know, um, uh, in both sort of consulting projects and academic research, we're, we're doing a lot of work on how we parse uh, insight from language. Right, so uh, whether we talk about customer views that are online, whether we talk about customer service calls uh, that happen over the phone, whether we talk about written content that we write and some of it gets read and some of it doesn't, um, almost everything we do from the emails we send, from the you know, language use in presentations, from the resumes we send, all of these things involve language in, in one way or another. Um, but some of those things are more successful than others, right? Using certain words on customer service calls makes people more likely to, to buy the product again or be more satisfied with the interaction. Certain ways of writing content makes it more engaging and makes people more likely to continue reading it. Uh, we've even done work with movie scripts or song lyrics and looking at, you know, well, how is the way that stories are told or the way that um, uh, song lyrics, uh, you know, uh, relate to 
what's usually talked about in that genre impact the success of those songs. And so in all of these things, you know, we're parsing textual data, whether you want to talk about natural language processing or, you know, machine learning or, or you want to talk about automated text analysis. There's really a lot of opportunity out there for, for companies to mine the data that they already have or collect new data to, to gain a lot of insight. And so um, we're doing a lot of work there and I think it's uh, really somewhat the future of social science. Well, thank you for your time. That's a wonderful spot to shift to our final two rapid fire questions that we ask all guests. The first one is this, if you could describe your leadership style, but I only gave you one word, what would that word be? Can I, can I use a hyphenated word? Go for it. Uh, I'll, I'll call it audience focused. Um, and so, you know, whether I'm teaching in the classroom, uh, working with a research assistant, working with a, a company, managing employees, you know, I try really hard, and I'm, I'm not the best at it, but I try really hard to think about them uh, and what their needs are and, and meeting those needs. The more we sort of think about that customer, whether that customer is truly a customer or that customer is an employee, a colleague, a boss, whoever it might be, the more we keep them in the center, uh, the more effective we'll be in meeting their needs and helping them meet ours. And the final question is this, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? <laughs> uh, you know, someone uh, once said, uh, always be curious. Um, and I, I really love that phrase. Uh, you know, I think whatever we're doing, whether it's the most exciting part of our job or the least exciting part of our job, there's always an opportunity to find something new uh, and find something interesting in it. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, things like This American Life and other sort of uh, shows that, that people love, they often take something very mundane and ordinary, and they go a level below uh, the level we usually think about. Um, and when you look at things a level below, almost everything uh, is interesting. Uh, you know, if you look at things from a child's eyes where everything is new, I think you can learn a lot of things and really uh, find things quite engaging. And, and so that advice of always being curious, you know, I, I try as much as possible to, to find those new and engaging things and whatever, whatever I'm doing. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, books are available wherever books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, whatever, whatever you like. Um, there's also a bunch of free resources. So if you're interested in either learning more about the books or how to apply the books, you know, how to change your boss's mind, how to change a colleague's behavior, um, how to get a product or idea to catch on. There's a bunch of resources at my website, uh, which is just Jonah, uh, J-O-N-A-H, uh, Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Uh, and people can also find me on, on LinkedIn or on Twitter uh, at J one burger. Well, thank you for all the great insight. And thanks to all our wonderful listeners for joining us. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. And we truly appreciate it when you share our show with your network. You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer. You can find our show on Instagram at learn to lead podcast, and you can find our organization at ability.com. Be sure to subscribe so that you get our next episode. And I want to thank all of you for joining us on the learn to lead podcast. Thank you.